Wonderful to see you tonight. I'm thankful to have everybody here so we can study the Bible together once again. And uh, I've been really encouraged by the singing tonight. It um, has been very healthy for me to lift up the name of the Lord in these songs, to thank the Lord for all He's done. We serve an awesome God. And it's just a privilege to be His child, right? And there's so many times just little things and... Uh, the fact that God commanded us to sing, uh, what a pleasure it is to obey that command. Whether you like singing or not uh, is not what I'm about, but the fact that, that we get to do it something together where we're all teaching each other how great God is, what a blessing. It made me think about, as we were singing, and how we get to do this together, uh, a scripture that I hope can help introduce this idea and why I think this is so important, and that is 1 John chapter 4, verse, let's do 19 through 21. So if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1868. And uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 through 21 and this is what that scripture says. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You know, that scripture there uh, is a kind of a catalyst for several of the sermons I've, I've presented throughout this uh, series of studies we've had. And that is asking you all to be introspective about your relationships among this congregation. And to think about one another and how you can help each other with doctrine. Right? That's what we talked about on, on Wednesday. right? And, and how we can help each other to overcome doubt, like what we talked about last night. And I think a, a follow-up to last night about overcoming doubt is to build a culture where we feel comfortable and safe to confess. And if the church is not a place where that happens, brothers and sisters, our members will find somewhere where they can whether that be for younger folks at school, uh, for those who work with their workmates, neighbors, family that maybe aren't believers. What I'm saying is we naturally will find people that we get along with, that we feel comfortable with, and we'll start to bear our soul to them. How strange that God's people would feel uncomfortable to bear their heart with other Christians and feel more comfortable to do it with people in the world. Now, here is the, the study outline, and many of you have already had the chance to snap this QR code. If you don't know how to snap a QR code, I'm, I'm sorry, but you'll probably have to wait till after services to figure it out. But it's up there, and all this will be is the PowerPoint on your phone, so you can follow along if I go too quickly. You can have it for additional study later on. Every time I've presented this topic, I've had people come up and say, ooh, that was just too much, too much content. So I've broken it into multiple sermons. It didn't work. I've put it back into one. So I'm just going to let you study on your pace if I go too quickly. Tonight, we're going to briefly look at an exposition or an overview of James chapter 5, verse 
13 through 16. This is the scripture that I think is essential to understand about why we need to build a culture in our local congregation of safe confession. Then we'll talk about the, that idea of, of safety and ask this question, why do we need it? You know, safety, that sounds like uh, something that those snowflakes need, right? They want their safe space and, and they just can't handle the real world. And yet, I think what we'll find is the Bible does talk about there is value in this concept of safety. We need to figure out how to build it internally so that we are comfortable with who we are. Uh, we feel a sense of peace with what God has given us. And when we've had trauma in our life, so whether you have experienced some sort of physical, emotional, sexual abuse, uh, and there is just a lack of safety because of those events, I want you to know that you can overcome through the power of God, and you can find that safety again. Also, as a congregation, we should talk about how to build it relationally. And then finally, we'll do a case study on what safety looks like in, a pro, in, in one of the parables of Jesus Christ. So let's begin. James chapter 5, 13 through 16. I will present this as a section on how to not grow weary. Now, the premise that we often hear it about is prayer. They are connected. But how I'm going to present this is this is a how-to guide of not to grow weary and lose heart. So for me, outlining is a very helpful way to study. I'd like to show you this scripture as an outline and then read it. So instead of reading it as a block paragraph, uh, consider this outline that I now have on the board. And it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them... And before I read it, I just want to emphasize with you, as we've read, hopefully you have visually seen there's three questions, right? Three questions that he then answers. And this third question takes a little bit more time to answer. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them do two things. Pray for him and anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then it describes what that process does. The prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, based on these questions and their answers, therefore, confess your sin to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working." Let's take a few minutes to break this outline down and consider uh, James's questions. The first section that we'll look at is how we strive personally, internally, how we strive to not grow weary. And he, he asks each of us these two questions. Are any of you suffering? And are any of you cheerful? And I want to visualize this on a spectrum because James uses Greek words that represent the farthest of far. The, are, are you in the lowest of lows? Or are you in the highest of highs? In this emotional experience that you're going through, as you go through life, as tribulation comes, as trial comes, as good times come, as, as joy comes, you're going to find yourself in the lowest of lows and in the highest of highs. What do we do in the lowest of lows and in the highest of highs, we could look back and we should pray when we're suffering and when we're cheerful. We should be singing praises 
right? That's, this is how we're to not grow weary. Now, I want to emphasize for just a moment, because it's just in the back of my mind in our culture, uh, and especially our church culture, that a lot of times the emotional experience gets relegated to the bottom because it's not truth, right? And so we say things like, um, when it comes to interpreting the Bible, your emotions don't matter, the truth matters. And I agree with how there is objective truth that all of us are intended to follow, but I would also like to share with you that God's way includes the emotional experience and that we need to make room for the emotional experience because emotions are valid. Psalm 147 verse 3, talking about God, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God cares when we are in distress. God cares when we are on the top of the world. He, he wants us to uh, mourn when others are mourning, as the book of Romans says. He wants us to rejoice when others are rejoicing. And I don't have time to go into all of this, uh, but this is an emotional wheel. We use this in therapy a lot, uh, especially with men, no offense, men, but culturally we're not really trained on how to uh, do anything other than to be mad, sad, and glad, right? Kind of grunt our way through those emotions. And when I went through therapy training, I was sad, mad, and glad, and then they're asking me, but, but you've got to be able to help your clients experience deeper, richer emotions. And I was going, ooh, me, me sad, me mad. And so uh, this emotional experience that people have oftentimes put on these beautiful colored spectrums, it's important for us to see that Jesus experienced a wide range of emotions, and it's healthy and appropriate that we can too. Now, I'm not interested in you manufacturing fake emotions or fake experiences or forcing things because you feel like that's what others want you to do. I'm just trying to make space for the emotional experience. Now, let's look at this middle section right here. We have a, a couple of answers to questions about how we personally strive not to grow weary. We're going to be praying. We're going to be singing. That's not the only answers, but ones that are good enough that James put it in the Bible. But here's the second section, and that's about what to do when we're still weary. So let's say for a time you've been in the lowest of lows, and so you've been praying, and you've been praying, and you've been praying, and it's just not working. You're just so low that you can't get out of it. Well, thankfully, this section is put here to help us appreciate that you're supposed to interact with others. You interact with others. So he says, Is any of you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them do two things. Pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now it's not the intention of this sermon to go deep down into the weeds of what it means to be anointed in the name of the Lord. I will have a slide to show you the weeds, but I'm going to ask you to look on that on your phone or on your smart device later on on your own in great detail. Here's the point that I'll be making. The words sick in this area of scripture uh, contextually are talking about being weary. And a better translation would be, is anyone among you weary? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's weary 
The Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And why this makes more sense with weary is because sickness is not directly tied to sin as far as, did you get cancer? Well, that's because you lied 12 years ago, and the Lord remembered it, and he threw that cancer into you because that's the price you get to pay. That's not the kind of God we serve. If, however, as I'm presenting it, it is weariness. There is weariness that's associated with uh, an emotional experience, but there's also weariness associated with sin. And there are times when I may be sad, glad, or mad just because life has me down, and there's there's times when I'm mad or I'm sad because I brought this on myself. Sin has consequences. You get a DUI, there's consequences to getting a DUI, right? We understand that legally. We should understand it spiritually as well. Now, here is the briefest of brief uh, talking about the views. There are people who think that we literally should anoint with oil, and their explanation is this. Here are my objections to that claim. But thirdly, what I'll ask you to consider on your own is spiritually it's talking about weariness. Here is the reasons why. And uh, here's what someone might have an objection about. Now, briefly, we have things we can do on our own. We have things that others can do for us. So here's the conclusion. Therefore, you are asked to confess your sins to one another. That's one form of weariness. And you pray for one another. That's another form of weariness to overcome, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what I want you to do is to remember that there are two types of weariness. We've got one type that is sin-based, and we've got another type that is simply emotional-based. And we do not grow weary, according to James 5, when we talk about it. Right? So there's going to be times when you talk about your sin problems, and you're confessing to someone that you trust I need help. Uh, Maybe I have an addiction issue. Maybe I have a behavioral issue. Maybe I have an anger issue. Whatever it is, we're confessing sin. There's other times when instead of at the back door when you see each other at services, you know what I know what the number one question that a Christian asks a Christian? How you doing? And it's not a question. It's really a statement. And you know what it's saying? Hello. And if one were to say, how you doing? And the other says, well, I'll tell you, man, it's been a hard, hard week. And I am just, I can't. Sometimes we're going, uh, I just asked you how you're doing. Uh, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> I'm not interested, right? The English language is bizarre sometimes. And what I would challenge us with is that when we're asking how you doing, you really should ask, how are you doing? So that someone feels safe enough to say, it's been a hard week, and I've been down here, and I can't figure out how to get out of it. Okay, so when those people get to that last little rope, and they're down there at the doldrums, uh, then how do we help them uh, get out of that weary experience? So that's the first part of our study. Hopefully now we feel better about James 5, and we know that there's some valuable teaching there that says that we're supposed to confess our sins to one another, We're going to pray for one another because the prayers of a righteous person availeth much. But let's talk about safety and why that word 
is very important in this conversation. Did you know that the word safety or safe in the Bible that we see in English actually comes from several Greek and Hebrew words in the Old and New Testament? And they paint a beautiful picture of what it means to be safe. Now, we use that word sometimes casually, right? Like somebody's running to first base and they're safe. They made it, right? As we, with our kids, when we play hide and seek and they're running to get to the couch before dad's chasing them down, they're diving through the air and they're safe, right? In the Bible, uh, you can look these up in, in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, many times they'll translate into English as safe, but other synonyms are that, that we're secure, right? That we're at peace, that we've escaped from some great problem, that there was deliverance and someone has broke free, that there's refuge. We've run into the Lord. He's a strong tower, as the Bible says in Proverbs 18.10. The righteous run into him and they are safe. In Luke 15.27, as we're going to talk about later, uh, the scriptures will call them safe and sound whenever they come home. And that safe and sound is talking about a wellness. And I love how it's used in 1 John, uh, or rather 2 John chapter 1, where it talks about how we are to be of sound mind. And so mental health, emotional well-being, these things are biblically based. We are to be of sound mind, safe in the mind, safe that we've been rescued, safe like an anchor that is sure in the middle of a storm. The boat can drop its anchor and it's safe even though the winds are crashing all over it. So it's easy maybe to listen to the news and listen, sometimes I can be guilty of it as well. And we hear people use a word and say, well, this is my safe space. So we just go, what a Nancy for thinking that they need to be safe. We don't need to be safe. We, we do. We really do. We need to feel comfortable enough to talk to someone that we feel safe with. Who in the Bible would be a good example of someone who felt safe? The Apostle Paul. And I'm going to show you a scripture here where he talks about himself. And I'm going to ask this question at the bottom. How was Paul able to confess this? Now, I've emphasized some words. Hopefully we can read it. It says... And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the, into the world to save uh, sinners of whom... I am chief. How's he able to talk so freely about that? And here's a guy that is a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Some might call him a murderer for putting Christians in jail. And, and uh, if they were then executed later, that he could have all sorts of things. And yet here he is just kind of broadcasting it freely. By the way, this is what I was. And I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of sinners. And I would suggest that Paul was safe Take all those words that we used and biblically, the way that they are used, we could say he was safe in his relationship with his Lord, meaning he felt comfortable to bring this to the master, but he also felt comfortable in talking about it with his brethren. Notice what he says. Jesus enabled me. Jesus counted me faithful. 
Jesus put me into a ministry. And therefore, I obtained mercy. And Jesus' grace was exceedingly abundant. And Jesus saved sinners. I'm the chief. And so, I obtained mercy. He felt comfortable in this. And he wants us to feel comfortable in it too because he says, however, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul is intended to be a pattern where you and me should be like him and we can talk about what we used to be. We can talk about what we are presently struggling with. Now, we're not going to you know, uh, celebrate sin. That's not what it's about. But it is about talking about how we used to be one way and then the Lord has done some wonderful work in our life and now we're different. Or uh, the Lord is trying to work through us, but man, we're just having a really hard time and we need help to get through it. Now, at this point in the sermon, as we go on to the next uh, point, I've had several people naturally fall into one of two groups. You're either really ready to help. You're like, that's it. I'm a safe person and I'm ready to go find those people that don't feel safe and I'm going to make them. Or you're the person who's about ready to get out of here and say, this is way beyond my comfort zone. Nobody here knows what I've done. Nobody knows what my life is like. And I don't know if I want to talk about it. And so the best illustration I've ever found is this. I have a, <laughs> this ostrich chasing a, zebra, or a, a giraffe, screaming, let me help you. And so it happens in the church. We get so zealous to want to help others uh, that sometimes we forget that, that maybe they're not where we are in this emotional process. I remember one time uh, I had a, a dear friend that I gave a sermon very similar to this, and I encouraged the church to... to you know, get to know each other and get to know each other about the, the parts of their life that maybe they're not ready to share. And he said he had come, uh, someone come up to him after that sermon who had never spent time with him other than a, hey, how are you? And the very first question that they asked was, tell me about your sister who hasn't been faithful for the past 10 years. And he was just not ready to have that conversation. It, it wasn't, he wasn't safe now, that other person felt very safe. I, this person was probably thinking, I'm totally safe, and I'm a safe person, and so I'll be able to ask him this question. So this is why I'm going to have a few of these thoughts, just to remind you it's okay if you're not quite there yet, or maybe if you're overzealous, that's okay too. Then I want you to, to know, at this moment in the sermon, it's okay if you don't feel safe, and it's okay to not understand others in the moment. So maybe you're just totally there, but somebody else in the congregation isn't. It's okay to not want to open up to everyone, right? It's okay if someone doesn't want to open up to you. That's important, especially if you're a helper type of person and you're insulted or offended if somebody doesn't want to talk to you about their problem. This is kind of a tricky sentence. Uh, it's okay if you're not someone else's safe person, even though you feel safe with them. So I've seen this happen among friends where one friend thinks the other is their best friend and they're just going to pour out their heart to them, whereas the other person wasn't ready for that. It's okay to want the safety that you see in others. And it's okay if it takes more time than you expected. So 
let's just take a breath as we jump into this third part of the study, and that is uh, talking about what's going on in your heart, how to build internal safety. Now, this is uh, from a training seminar that I went to, and, and I know this is very small, but it says, how can I become more secure, a grounded theory of earning secure attachment by Olawa, I don't even know how to say that, Olufawate and Fife Schleiden and Whitting. And so this was at the, the Texas Annual Marriage and Family Therapy Conference. And as they were giving this presentation about research they'd done on how to build safety within a person, I thought, you just stole that from the Bible. I know you stole it from the Bible. You're going to say that that's this therapy thing, but I know you did. So I took the pleasure of, of capturing it back for the Bible, even though they might not claim it comes from there. So we're going to look at an illustration in the form of a house. I have had some experience with home renovation, but please do not base this house and the way it's constructed off of sound practices that we have in the real world. But we're going to start with this concept. What happens when you're here and sin and weariness is beating down on you and you've got to build this internal safety so that you can talk to someone? You know, maybe you're afraid to talk to somebody in this place because you're afraid they won't know what I've been through. They will judge me. They will look down on me. Now, I could say all day long, no, they won't. But until you feel safe, it's going to be hard for you to overcome that. So here is a research-backed method to build internal safety that I think is biblically based. Now here's the roof. Now notice I started with the roof. You never start with the roof when you build a house. However, there are internal changes and there are relational changes that will shelter you from the storm. So the question is, how do we build these internal changes and how do we build relational changes. So now we'll start down at the bottom with the foundation. And this is the foundation to build safety coming from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Did you know that's a command? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In the same way that communion is a command, that our worship, the items in it are commanded, transformation is a command. Mental renewal. Well, how do we do that? How do we transform our minds? I'm going to show you four research-based ways that people have come to feel safe. Number one, people state by being intentional. Today, I'm going to do X, Y, Z to try to build a little safety. And I like what Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 says. Set your mind on things above and not on things of this world. So a mindset is healthy and necessary to build safety and overcome trauma in your heart. Number two, overcome setbacks, meaning you will take a risk and somebody might let you down. The Bible says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And friends, if you have a mindset where you're going to say, I'm going to take a risk, but kind of like I said last night, this person that I'm going to take a risk with, this isn't my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ is. And this person may let me down. So I got to remember that. They might let me down. Jesus doesn't let me down, but this person might. Having that in your heart is helpful. Number three, having surrogate attachments. Or we might call this an adopted or chosen family. And the Bible's full of surrogate attachments. 
You could write down, if you're taking notes, in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15, this young foreign woman, her husband dies. Uh, the family is pretty much wiped out except for her mother-in-law, right? But her husband's gone, so she could just go back to her people. But she tells this woman that she's not really related to anymore, but she decides she's going to go with her. She says, your people, they're going to be my people. Your God, he's going to be my God. And so this young woman, Ruth, has a surrogate attachment to Naomi. In Romans chapter 16, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother and mine. And that's one little thought, and I wish I could expand it so much more than this. But Paul looked to this woman like a mother. So my question for you all is, do you have people in the church whom you look to and they're like a brother to you, like a sister to you, like a mom, like a dad, a spiritual family. Like this is what we're supposed to be. Galatians chapter 3 talks about how when we're baptized into Christ, we all put on him through baptism. And there's no longer Jew nor Greek or slave nor free nor male or female, but we're all one in Christ. We, we are a surrogate family. And that's research based. And this is why I'm saying I think they stole it from the Bible. Number four, uh, therapy and education. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5 says that a, the heart of a man is like a deep well, but a man of understanding can draw it out. And so I do think it is healthy and helpful to reach out to others who have training to help you overcome traumatic experiences. So now that we've got the foundation, let's build the walls of internal changes and relational changes. So we can look at this research-based method of an internal change, and that is to relinquish the victim mentality. Now, I don't say that uh, in, in like an insulting way, like, oh, you're just a victim and get over it. Because sometimes you've been through the ringer. But the Bible suggests and research suggests that if we put on the mindset, this, I'm more than this. I'm not going to have a name tag for my, the rest of my life that says this is how I'm identified as by this trauma. I will put that down and put on something else that you are able to overcome that trauma quicker. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A second step is to redefine one's identity and worth. So by taking off a victim mentality and putting on, in this context, putting on Christ. Putting on His identity. I love what John chapter 8, verse 36 says, so who the Son sets free is free indeed. And one of my favorite songs, I don't know if it's in this folder or not, but it's, that's the, how the chorus goes. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. And then we all sing together, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I love that phrase. I love saying it with my brothers and sisters. Well, we're all calling out together this new identity, this new worth where it doesn't matter what I used to be and what I used to do, I'm not, I'm not measured by that anymore. I'm measured by Jesus. And he says, I'm a child of God. And so what else can I declare? But yes, I am. And so this is how we construct internal changes towards safety. It takes time. And while we're doing that, research also suggests that you must make relational changes. You can't be an island by yourself. And so... We are to do our best to make peace with the past, what some call the family of origin. And so if there's abuse 
in the family that you grew up with, if there's poor relationships with friends in, in your past part of your life, then we are to try our best to make peace with it. And I want to read Romans 12, verse 17. It says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And it's important to remember this. You might want to make peace with someone else, but they might not want to make peace with you. And it's not your job to make them make peace with you. Remember, if you're the ostrich, you know, let me help you, right? We can't force someone into a relationship. But I love how the scripture says, as much as it's possible with you, meaning you have a job to do, and that's to try, to do your best to make peace. And finally, we take small risks of trust. And as James 5.16 says, which is a command, confess your sins to one another. This is when you take a risk with somebody at church and you find someone whom you maybe are close to or you feel like they're a safe person and you're able to say, hey, could we get a cup of coffee? Something I want to talk about. And that cup of coffee at whatever place here in town, or if you don't like coffee, get tea, whatever, I don't care. The point is you're going to spend some time uh, and it's going to take time. This isn't something you talk about in 30 seconds and you say, great talk, and walk away. You might need to Take an hour or two or three. And that small risk built on making peace with your past leads to relational changes. And these are research-based methods that we can grow stronger inside. One of my favorite verses that I want to close with on this section is 1 John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And it says, By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows all things. As I have learned when it comes to people who've been through trauma or have had uh, past experiences, a lot of guilt, there's a whole lot of uh, self-doubt and inability to let go of that past. And one of the things about this scripture is to remind these people as they're building this house, God is greater than your heart. And so when you're having trouble building it, remember, God is greater he knows all things, and he is able to help you overcome. Now, there's a book called Safe People. Wouldn't you know it? And these uh, psychologists list the characteristics of someone who is safe and someone who's not safe. And I'm just going to, we're going to plow through it in 30 seconds, okay? They believe a safe person is somebody who is honest and gentle and direct, humble and self-aware able to listen and receive the truth. They act on the needs and they don't just hear. They grow and work towards personal improvement. And then unsafe people are dishonest and defensive. They withdraw or stonewall. They manipulate. They flatter, but they do not confront with truth. They may apologize. They don't change their behavior and they lack personal insight and awareness. But you know what's better than a book is the Bible. And the Bible, I think, summarizes it this way. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, it's not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So as we're building safety, here we are on this last slide, as we're building safety, we got to remember that a safe person is able to uh, take on a lot of these character traits 
And then be aware that sometimes there's some false character traits that we try to put on. For example, this one, flattery but does not confront with truth. We think we're safe when we just kind of let someone do whatever. That's not a safe person. A safe person is going to challenge somebody to uh, consider the truth. Okay, here we are. Very quickly, how to build congregational safety. So now let's start talking about this group of people here. How do you work together towards making this a safe space? It's important to remember that a church is made up of various types of relationships. And a question that you might be asking, and if not, I want you to ask it with me, is am I supposed to be this or to have this deeply personal and vulnerable relationship with everyone here? Well, I think that's an ideal that we want to strive for. But I want you to just take a deep breath and think to yourself, I don't have to be that close with every single member. Why not? Uh, you might be a little bit upset. Why not? I thought I was supposed to be close with everyone. Well, I'm going to use Jesus as the example. Okay, And I want you to consider that Jesus had various types of interactions and relationships with his followers. Jesus had a multitude. And that would be like his public interactions. Jesus had the 12, which was an outer circle. That's what I'm going to call an outer circle of friends, of safety. Then he had the three, Peter, James, and John. And these three, they got to spend time with him in ways that no one else did. They got to see special miracles that no one else saw. And even when they went to pray, he went a little farther with Peter, James, and John before he went off to pray by himself. But you know, Jesus also had alone time. And I, I define that as a healthy personal form of safety where we have a boundary to say, you know what, uh, I need to kind of recharge right now before we have this conversation. My question is, in which of these was Jesus not his authentic self? And I would say Jesus was authentic in every single scenario. He may have acted differently with the multitude than he did with his inner three. In the same way that we might interact with each other differently at a, at a church lunch or after services, and there's a lot of people, a lot of conversations, it's kind of loud, and maybe it's a little overwhelming. That's probably not the best time to be vulnerable. And so it's okay to not have that deep connection with everyone. But here's my question. Who's your three? Do you have a three? And I do think it's a flexible number. You could have you know, one or two or three or four. Like You don't have to have three. Like, oh, I've got two. I'm one short. No, no, no. I want you to think about who are the three that you consider in that group. It might be your husband or your wife. It might be a brother or sister. It might be a best friend. It might be a neighbor. Uh, there naturally are relationships here that have that already. But there are also maybe people who don't have those relationships. Who are their three? And how can we help them grow? Research suggests that healthy relationships are built through connection, as this study shows at the bottom. And a lot of times I understand the research. You hear that title and you go, duh. <laughs> Everyone knows that. And that's how research works a lot of times. Is they, they research the things that uh, maybe the rest of us had already figured out, but social scientists really got to look at the details a lot of times. Healthy relationships are built through connection. And I want to read this scripture and then explain this pyramid of connection uh, that Caudill and Drake and, and some counseling 
services put together in 2020. First uh, John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as He is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this scripture is an emphasis on fellowship. And fellowship takes three things. It takes you, it takes another believer, and as we'll see in a little bit, I'll have the word God up here. Uh, it takes three for fellowship to work properly. But it's important to remember that manufactured connection, where you're trying to force something, is lonely and it's discouraging. Let me give you an example. Uh, research shows that if you want to have an intimate relationship, and I'm not talking about sex, which we usually uh, use with the synonym of intimacy, but what the way I'm presenting it tonight is just a deeply personal and very close connection that can be platonic as friends. It can be between marriage partners as well. But we're really interested. We want to be vulnerable. We want to have this intimate relationship. But you can't just jump into those. It's not possible. Now, it can happen very quickly, but uh, we start with truth. And that means that two people have to have something in common, a shared sense of meaning. And with that shared sense of meaning, then they move up that relationship pyramid into safety, that they feel comfortable to talk to one another about that shared sense of truth. And as they feel comfortable talking about it, suddenly now they trust each other that they can move beyond maybe that one thing that brought them together. Maybe it was you know, a work friend. And the only thing you talk about is work. But then you feel safe to talking about work, so then you can bring up some other issue that's on your mind. And that's how we get to vulnerability and intimacy. But when you try to manufacture it, and this person is desperate to have a vulnerable, intimate connection with their friend, right? Or with your marriage partner. And a lot of times this is what happens. In, in marriage, one person's reading a book. The other person's watching TV or something, right? They're not interested in this book. And this book's got some great stuff. I mean, it's going it's to save our marriage. And it's going to take us to the next level. And so we start trying to implement the things of this book. And our partner wasn't really there for any of that. And so what happens? Uh, and this isn't a marriage. This is just a friendship example up here. But this person uh, is ready to move into safety, but the other's not. This person's ready to move into trust, and the other's not. And as this person starts to divulge things... And they're moving into this place where, I, well, I trust you. And, and I'm talking about this stuff. Why aren't you talking back? Why aren't you opening up to me? Because it's manufactured. And it will only end up in loneliness and discouragement. And very quickly, that friendship becomes superficial all over again. So what are we supposed to do? Well, with God at the top, and this is why I have this scripture here, when we have fellowship with one another, I think fellowship and relationship are two very close words. But with that inner three, or the person that you're trying to get closer with, you want to be vulnerable with, you start with a sense of truth together, and you move into safety together, and you start trusting each other, and then we're able to open up about a problem. And someone divulges, man, I've, I've, I've had a porn addiction for the past 20 years, and I don't know how to stop. Or... Uh, I lost my job last week and I'm going to lose everything, but I haven't been able to talk to my wife about it. 
I'm just pretending to go to work, right? So we get, how do we get to these points? Because we build these other things in common. And then we get to intimacy, the closest thing. And what I'm suggesting to you is the way that we get there is that we're both pursuing God. And by pursuing God with someone in the congregation, trying to get closer together and trying to create that sense of safety, uh, this is how it is accomplished. We can talk more about that afterwards. In conclusion, I simply want to share with you uh, the, prodigal fa- the prodigal's father and brother and how they are an, ex- an excellent example of someone who's safe and someone who's not safe. And so I'm going to share some visual aids with you up here on the board. Uh, and we will briefly review the parable. And that is that there was this prodigal uh, or this son who told his father that he wanted to go off into a far country. And so his father gave him his portion of the inheritance and he went off and squandered his life and his living in that place. And after a series of very embarrassing and unfortunate events, he decides to come home. And when he comes home to his father, he tells him, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what I want to emphasize here is that the father was safe in two ways in this relationship. First, he was safe in that he didn't go with the son to the far country. That's important to remember. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to excuse sin and to make allowances for our friends and our family when they're trapped in sin. But the father didn't do that. The father, there is an open door and he waited for the son to return, but he wouldn't go with him. That's a safe person. But when the son came back, that safety is made manifest in how the father responds. He runs to meet him. He picks him up and he hugs him. He kisses him. He calls for a robe to be put on him, a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And even though the son is completely broken, the father calls out, my son, my son was lost and he's found. He's alive again. Now, as the parable continues, the older brother who didn't leave and had not wasted money in prodigal living finds out that the younger son has returned. And not only has he returned, but the father is now celebrating him. And he is frustrated and angry with what has happened here. And so he won't even go into the party. The father has to walk out and talk to him. And in in anger, he says for the first time in the parable that, that your son wasted his money on prostitutes. It never said that up till that point. It did say prodigal living, and it's likely that he had wasted the money on prostitutes. This is the first time. The older brother is not safe because he's interested in justice and revenge and judgment at all costs. Instead of like the father who had a boundary that he wouldn't cross, but when that son came back repentant, he was ready to forgive. Now, the moral of this story is that just like the older brother and the younger brother both in a way were lost and needed to repent and come back to their father, so were the Jewish people that Jesus was working with and the Pharisees who judged and looked down on uh, those who were tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is trying to call both sides to repentance. And what I'm trying to advocate for with safety is that if you want to be safe, 
for others, then we do have a moral boundary that we don't cross. But when others are willing to come back and to open up and, and to be vulnerable with us, that we're not going to demand a pound of flesh, but we'll help them find the Lord. That's our Bible study tonight. And I know that's a lot of, lot of information that we've gone through. We've covered four big concepts of how to not grow weary, according to James 5, how being safe is a biblically appropriate concept, how to build internal safety so that we feel comfortable to reach out, and then how congregationally or relationally we understand that this is a journey we're going to go through together with someone, and we're not going to expect them to be vulnerable while we get to just be stonewalling towards them. I hope some of this was helpful information for you. And I'd like to show you this animation and read this scripture as we offer the gospel invitation. I love it. It's one of my favorite images on baptism. And it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ uh, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And I think what we've talked about tonight is a part of this gospel process. We have to walk in newness of life. Who we are after baptism is just as important as getting baptized. Right? And so, uh, friends, if anyone here hasn't been baptized, we're about to have a gospel invitation. And I want to challenge you to think about, according to the Scriptures, how faith leads us to hear the word and to believe the message, to repent of our sins and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and be baptized. And that baptism puts us in Christ. And without baptism, we're not in Christ. But part of baptism is who we are afterwards. And who we are afterwards should be people who are safe and a congregation who's safe. And if you've had struggles with that, then this gospel invitation is also for you where you can come forward and start a new page in a new life, living for the Master. If there's one of either class, please come as we stand and sing a song. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.